We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 107 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 1st of August, 2017, and with me, a special guest, the Squeaky Wheel. Welcome aboard, Squeaky. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. That's good. So, dear listener, um, Squeaky does have a real name and occupation, but uh, just for privacy reasons, we're going to keep her identity a secret. Uh, Some people may recognise her voice who have connections with me, but, um, you know, it is a true fact of life that it's a little bit dangerous to come out with views in this world, uh, you know, work-wise and whatever, and I'm in a fortunate position where that's okay for me, but, yeah, it's a real issue where people have to be careful what they say may have an effect on employment, etc. So, so Squeaky, we'll do our best to keep you, um, to keep your true identity private, for, um, for the podcast. So, um, first topic. Oh, actually, I'm really happy that we've got you on because I've always wanted a female voice on the podcast and it's always been a bit blokey, I feel. so. Um, <laughs> I think that's just secularism in, in general, isn't it? It's not, um, <laughs> it's not unique to the podcast. There seems to be a lot more men than women in general who care about secular issues. It does, doesn't it? So... Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the four horsemen were all men, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there was a, I don't know, was it on the, was it actually on the podcast about the, there was a thing about the four horsemen of the apocalypse being soccer moms? No, no, oh, no I don't think uh, so. <laughs> it made quite a good case for having um, apocalyptic women. <laughs> Yes. Other than men, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but I know the Facebook page for the Secular Party had uh, you're able to look at the statistics, and there was a strong representation of men on that. I think sixty forty or something like that. Would that be right? Yeah, around about that. Yeah, and um, certainly more male commenters than female commenters generally. So yeah, the interesting thing is that. Um, you know, the one sort of voice for secularism um, that is female, the most prominent one would be Ayan Hersey Alley. And when she, you know, bobbed her head above the parapet, the, you know, the soup kitchen um, ladies really went for her. <laughs> so, yes. you know, part of me thinks, oh, do women stay out of this because it's a bit rough and tumble in the secular atheist world where people are a bit nasty? But, uh, you know, the the Aeon Hersey Alley experience showed that that women can be particularly nasty against other women. Definitely. I mean, you only have to go to Mamma Mia or, you know, Pop Sugar Mums or any of those kind of websites to see just how all-out violent it gets when you have a group of women commenting on things, particularly child-rearing and breastfeeding and things like that. So I, I don't think it's that keeping women away. I'm not sure that it's it's not um, having the time to actually delve deeper into some of those issues or to think deeply. I think there's a real kind of ignorance is bliss attitude among women who tend to be more emotional than 
I suppose uh, they are rational sometimes. I mean, that's a huge generalization, of course, because we have plenty of really intelligent women who, who are very rational and very logical and who do who are intellectual and like to look into those issues as well. But I mm. think a lot of women are, you know, they're busy kind of working and and raising kids and trying to run a household and a lot of them doing finance, the finances and stuff as well. And I think it doesn't leave them with a lot of headspace at the end of the day. There's a lot going on in women's heads of organising other people, be that elderly parents or children or, you know, and colleagues and stuff as well sometimes. So I think it, it's really just a kind of an exhaustion um, mm. that women think they'd just rather go in and read a novel than go and read nonfiction or go and immerse themselves in something that could be potentially controversial. That's kind of, yeah. that's kind of what I so thought. I, I think, um, you know, there's certainly an argument that the gender and chromosomes can make a difference to the way people think and it's just good to get um, a voice from the other side from my point of view. I'll let you in on a secret, uh, squeaky wheel. Um, in my, as I get older, if I go to a dinner party or a barbecue or something like that, and if it splits up into men on one side and women on the other, I these days find myself gravitating towards the women's group because they have by far the most interesting conversations and <laughs> they, they will reveal their sex lives and all sorts of stuff in these conversations while the guys are talking about football or whatever. And, you know, I don't mind a bit of foot, foot, football talk, but... You know, dear listener, particularly the blokes out there and the younger ones, here's here's a tip on life. If you really want to hear some of the juicy conversations um, in those circumstances, then um, just try out the ladies' side of the of the room occasionally, and you'll really get some interesting stuff. But um, definitely, definitely, I, I think there's a lot of locker room talk that goes on with groups of women that um, <laughs> that if men can be privy to if they're, they're eavesdropping or, or they're, they're allowed that sort of, you know, occupy that, that one lone male position in the group. So That's it. It's a good spot to be in, gentlemen, and I recommend it to you. So, um, all right, with those preliminaries out of the way, our first topic, Squeaky Wheel, is going to be about this case of... Um, a Melbourne Sikh family, which is challenging an inclusive Christian school's ban on the boys' turban. So, as we know, in the Sikh community, many of them like to wear a particular form of headgear as part of their uh, religious practice. I'll just read a bit of this article to sort of set the scene, and then Karen and I are going to have a bit of a debate about this. So, from the article, it says that uh, a Melbourne family has launched legal action against a Christian school for banning their son from wearing his traditional Sikh patka, a turban worn by children. Sidhak Singh Arora, five years old, was due to start prep at Melton Christian College in Melbourne's northwest this year, but his patka does not comply with the school's uniform policy, which prevents, which prohibits students from wearing any type of religious head covering. His family have taken their fight to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, claiming the school had breached the state's Equal Opportunity Act by discriminating against their son on religious grounds. Outside the court, the boy's father said, quote, I was very surprised in an advanced country like Australia. They are still not allowing us to wear patka in the school. Um... The boy's been enrolled in another school, but he's hoping that Milton College will be forced to change its policy so he can go back to that first school. 
the college, for its part, has said um, former college council member Stephen Leafting told the hearing they were inclusive of people of all faiths. Quote, as long as they don't wear clothing that promotes other religions, he said. We don't want children standing out as different. We're inclusive in the college. And Principal David Gleeson gave evidence that a number of Sikh students attend the school but do not wear the patka. And he said, quote, I think one of the real strengths of the college is that we're blind to every... The, blind to... Everyone is blind to religious affiliations, he said. Anything additional to the uniform isn't allowed. And he gave the example of another student who liked wearing a new balance cap but was not allowed to. So there we go. We've set the scene with, um, with the issue. And Squeaky Wheel, well, yeah. dear, dear listener, um, I actually think that this kid should not be allowed to wear this headgear. But for the purposes of a debate, I'm going to take the position that he, he should be allowed and we'll see where we end up. Actually, as I started writing my reasons, I kind of started convincing myself that maybe I should change my mind. So here we go, squeaky wheel. Um, now, dear listener, we're going to look at the moral question here, the ethical question, and not the legal question. So, uh, squeaky wheel, I think one of our key values um, of our Western liberal democracy is individual freedom. And basically... It's the idea that you can do what you like so long as you don't hurt other people. And that's one of our key maxims of living in this liberal Western democracy. Do what you like so long as you don't hurt other people. And, you know, this little five-year-old boy wearing his little patka, Sidhak Singh Aurora, he's not hurting anybody just by wearing a headpiece. It's... Not affecting anybody. They just look over. Oh, there he is. He's got his headpiece on, but doesn't affect anybody. Why? Well, Why shouldn't individual freedom allow him to just wear it? Well, I think the difference here is that he's a child. He's a, he's not an adult. He's not capable. He's not, and he and he's actually not even. He doesn't even have legal personality yet at his age. So, um, although he's not necessarily hurting anybody by wearing it. We can't tell whether he's actually being harmed by being essentially forced into wearing it because he can't really, he doesn't really have a right to, to not consent to wearing it within the, the boundaries of his parents' religion. So while the Sikh religion is, you know, it's it's relatively peaceful and they have their own little, little practices and, yes, we can say that, with, you know, within Australia we're multicultural and therefore we have to accept those differences he's also at school and we know that schools are not places in Australia where individuality is especially fostered um most Australian schools have a uniform policy we don't really have schools like they have in America where you can wear whatever you like to school most schools have a uniform policy and most actually apply it pretty strictly too so um certainly you know in state schools I think there's absolutely no place in a secular state school for any kind of religious uh, garb whatsoever, be that a cross or a, a, a little packer or, you know, anything, a, a hijab. I just think that um, children who are uh, underage, and I would say probably under 16 rather than obviously under 18, um, can't really consent to wearing it and therefore it really shouldn't be in there. And I think the, the harm that could come to this child from wearing it is that he is considered different, is that he is bullied, is he, that he is picked on. And, yes, we need structures in, in place in schools to prevent that from happening and to make kids be more tolerant of others as well. 
But I just think this is a Christian school that this family's enrolled him in as well. Like, it's not a state school. It's a Christian school. And it should really, they should really have expected that this would be the likely outcome of enrolling a child into a Christian school and saying, well, look, we, we need him to wear this other outside manifestation of a different religion. I just, I just think it's not really necessary for any children in any school, be it a private Christian school or a secular school, to have to wear something that defines their religion. Um, they're in school to learn about factual things. They're not in school to learn about fairy tales or whatever their, whatever their parents believe, however misguided. So I just think it's all best kept out of school. And, I mean, what if there's another religion that has some, I mean, can we, can we have, we have pastafarianism as a great example. Can we have kids going to school wearing a colander on their head because their parents happen to be pastafarians and, and that's what they want to wear? Will the schools have to allow that if we rule that, you know, this guy should be able to wear his little head covering to school? Um well, I, I wouldn't have a problem with a kid with a colander on his head. Uh, imagine, imagine the resilience that that would build in a kid who could do that. It certainly would and, build some resilience. But do we want to? But, but hang on, before you before you fire off too many arguments, let me just address some of them here, Squeaky Wheel. I mean, you're saying children don't have freedom. Is that you know like? Just because he's a child, we're talking about freedom of religion here. I mean, but but he doesn't have it because he's a child. Surely, freedom is such a fundamental right that that we all get it automatically, whether we're children or adults. Well, well no, we we really don't. And the reason for that is that because parents can make decisions about their children's religion, and we, you know, poss- quite possibly this boy loves wearing this on his head, and he he feels part of his community, and it's part of his religion, and it makes him feel good. But he's still a child and he, he can't really make decisions about what religion he is. You know, I don't think any child who's under 16 really has enough knowledge about mythology and religion and science and all of those things to actually determine for themselves what their religion is. They're really just basing that on what their parents' religion is, what they've been told. Um, they're not making a conscious decision to be to believe in a, in a certain thing. So, I, re- I mean... What, what about what about the parents' right to experience his religion fully, which would require him to raise his children with all of the necessary religious accoutrements? So you might say, well, you know, the kid can't consent to this, but uh, but we've really got the parents' right here to express his religious belief, which involves raising his children in his belief. Absolutely, 100% able to do that at home. He's able to do that in whatever place of worship. He's even able to do it walking around our streets in in most places apart from some public buildings, I think, and and even in public buildings. So I don't think that right's being denied to him at all. Where he's not able to do it is in this school. And, I mean, my kid loves to wear brightly coloured things. I mean, she she dresses like a clown most of the time. She's, She's six years old. Like, she'll put on anything. She'll look completely crazy. But when she goes to school in the morning, she has to be wearing her school colours. She can't be wearing gaudy necklaces or this or that or yeah, yeah, crazy yes. colours. There's there's rules. But, but, but hang on, the the colour the colourful colours for your daughter and you know the New Balance cap for the other kid, for example, that's that's really fairly well with respect to your daughter, <laughs> trivial. Uh, 
sort of personal preference on an aesthetic level, whereas this goes to the identity of a person. I mean, this is an important issue. It's not something trivial. It's, well, look, half the time she identifies as a unicorn at the moment, so <laughs> 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 she's not allowed to wear rainbows. I just think it, it, it doesn't go to the identity of a child who's under 16, if you ask me. It, it can't. I just can't see any way that it can because I don't believe that that child at that age is really old enough to see themselves as a product of their parents' religion or their religion. Well, the reason, the reason you can't see that is because of your privilege. Um, yes, very likely, like atheists, so, like privilege. <laughs> but that's, that's right. Without wanting to reveal your identity too much, would it be fair to say that you would, you, you, you're, you're, you're suffering from white privilege? No, look, I don't think it would be fair to say that because obviously okay. as a woman, as a woman, I was kind of able to cancel out some of the white privilege by the fact that I'm also a, an oppressed minority group, well, a majority group that's that's oppressed. So I, I've got a bit of a, a few cards up my sleeve there. Yes, yeah, but, you know, you don't have the cultural card and you said, well, I just can't oh, see that a kid needs this, yeah, you know, cultural identity. I have the cultural card, but actually my, my children are mixed race and my husband is mixed race. So um, I could potentially say, look, you know, on the basis of the fact that, you know, my child has some Filipino heritage, then she must go to school wearing this particular item. You know what I mean? I mean... I, I don't even know, to be honest with you, what that item would be, but perhaps it's some form of traditional dress. I mean, what is the difference between a traditional dress, like a Fijian male student who wants to come to 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 school wearing, um, you know, the little male skirt that the Fijians wear, a Sulu. Mm. Now, what if, what if, is that part of his cultural identity? Sure, it's part of his cultural identity. It's probably just as much part of his cultural identity as a funny hat. Um, but for some reason, funny hats get prioritised because they're associated with religion. Religion still occupies this untouchable place, this untouchable kind of, um, you know, we can't, we can't possibly not treat it like race or sex or any of those other sort of more serious um, identity-driven facets of a personality and I, I think that's wrong because we choose our religion you know essentially we do we, we can choose to remove ourselves from that religion and therefore we're not born with religion we're all we're all born not knowing um anything about any sort of higher being until we're told by our parents and, and obviously that's the reason that there are different religions around the world it really depends where you were born largely or who you were born to as to what your religion is so you know i think there are there are valid comparisons there to someone wanting to go to school and wearing a cultural piece of clothing and somebody wanting to wear a religious hat. And if we make exceptions like this, where, where do they end? We just we, we end up having no school uniforms at all because everybody's wearing something that has some sort of personal meaning to them instead of being united as a school, wearing a school uniform, learning to be part of a team is essentially what... Uh, I think our schools are doing in in having uniforms. It's, it's making people, bringing people together, uniting them under one banner, saying you're all the same, you've all got to wear the same uniform, you're all learning the same stuff, you know, you're part of this school and you're part of this community. 
Yes, but that that uniting, you know, theory works well when you're part of the majority and you can say, well, we've all decided democratically that this is what we're going to wear and and that turns out in reality, well, it's neutral for the majority. Uh, the minorities have to compromise. Uh, so a policy which says no head coverings uh, is neutral for the majority but not for the Sikhs, the Muslims or the Jews. So that's part of the problem of, of white privileged majorities well, um, dictating a... a, a a clothing standard that is actually doesn't hurt them because it suits their, you know, culture, but in fact is discriminatory against the minorities. Well, it's really not discriminating against them if it's saying, look, no, we're not allowing any funny hats at all. Um, we're not, you know, apart from your school hat, that's the only funny hat you're allowed to wear. We're not allowing crosses. We're not allowing any of this other stuff. Then it's really not. And I think, you know, most Australians would agree, and there are polls out there that suggest that most Australians agree that multiculturalism has benefited Australian society, that it's a net benefit for Australia, and um, and that we actually quite enjoy it. You know what I mean? We, we like being a diverse society. We like having a lot of different views. Uh, we like having a lot of different people from different countries. We like having a lot of different religions. But we live in a, we live in a democracy, and that does mean that, Majority is kind of important. What what the majority thinks is really how we govern this country, um, and and that's what democracy is. So, I'm not saying that means that we have a right to to rule roughshod over minorities, and we certainly don't have any right to to treat them poorly or to to deny them their human rights. But this is a religious liberty case. It's not really a human rights case, if you ask me. So, I know that you know the. There are some um, agreements that we're signed up to that suggest that a parent has a human right to raise their children into whatever religion they want. Um, I think that I personally think that that's incorrect. Parent that no parent should be telling their child anything about religion until they're sixteen or so. But I do think that it's incumbent on people who come into Australia as minorities to also fit into. The majority. So otherwise what we tend to end up with is everybody doing their own thing and nobody playing together. Um, On the other hand, though, immigrants come in for criticism for for forming enclaves and for going to special faith schools. And here we have an example of, of somebody actually trying to integrate into a mainstream school, so to speak. So shouldn't we be making some allowances and trying to encourage those families to join the mainstream schools rather than the faith schools? And if that means a simple head covering or or, or the like, wouldn't the benefit outweigh the detriment by, by having that um, by encouraging those families to join mainstream schools instead of faith schools? Well, I mean, this is a faith school that he's joining. He's not going down to his local primary school. He's going to a Christian school. So he's he's still going to a faith school, you know, that's receiving but, funding from the government. So I, I don't think, and I mean, if, even if he was going to a secular school, I don't think that that's an allowance 
that we necessarily need to make. I mean, he, the kid's able to come into school and he's able to receive the same education as everybody else. So really it's um, if, he's, if he's really determined to fit into this school, and, and I don't know, perhaps there are six schools in Australia, I don't, I've not heard of them, um, but if you, I, I know that there are obviously Muslim schools and there are obviously Catholic and all sorts of other faith schools, um, but if he really is wanting to fit in to mainstream society, then why is he going? Why is he sending his kid to a Christian school? Why isn't he sending his kid to a secular state school? In that case, anyway, I feel like sometimes there's a bit of trolling that goes on with this sort of thing. That like there's, it, it's kind of a we have to challenge this, and so they go in, and then there becomes a legal precedent, whichever way that it's ruled, and then we have to we have to change to allow it. You know, and, and I think some of it's really just, I don't know, I feel like it's it's going out of their way to say, like, I mean, he actually says in here that he thought uh, Australia, um, something about that he thought Australia would be would be better than this. And I'm like, well, as far as I know, in some of the countries, most of the countries that people who wear funny hats are coming from, there's not a lot of diversity there, you know. If I want to go to his country and send my boy to a Sikh school and not wear a head covering, how is that received, you know? And I, I dare say it's probably not received particularly well. So it needs to be a two-way street. I think there are some things that we can accommodate and there, and there are other things that we shouldn't. And I think that this has a tendency to then lead to other accommodations. So, for instance, I mean, we've already had a case here in Australia where um, a Sikh boy also... Um, wanted to wear a ceremonial dagger, which the Sikhs wear to defend people's honour. So it's an honourable mm. idea that that Sikh boys and men wear a little ceremonial sort of knife um, and they generally wear it under their clothes because there's been a few instances where people have freaked out when they've worn it outside mm. of their clothing in shopping centres. And, you know, and, it was, and it, there actually was a case in Australia where it was determined that... Um, yes, they were able to sort of wear this um, to school. So for me, then I asked, well, okay, that's great. What if, I mean, we're having new religions all the time. We have Scientology is probably one of the newer religions that people often uh, say, well, is it really a religion or is it a cult? You know, what makes it a religion? Is the only thing that makes it a religion is that, um, you know, Ron Hubbard is dead. Is that the defining difference between a cult and a religion? I don't know. But, you know, mm -hmm. let's say that over time there are new religions popping up and one decides that, okay, well, I'm going to wear a spinny helicopter hat and we're going to carry a gun. That's what we're going to do. And, I mean, you think that that would sound like a really far-fetched kind of slippery slope argument, but actually in America where they do have um, a constitutional right to bear arms, a Sikh guy in 2013 actually argued that as an extension of that notion that he needs to defend his family and their honour, that he um, had a right to to wear to, to take his gun with him everywhere, like he would take the little um, ceremonial dagger. So that was in 2013. Um, a sick man cites religion in lawsuit against gun control. So. He was suing the state of California over its gun laws, arguing that they were violating his First Amendment rights to practice his religion by banning him from carrying a weapon that he needed for self-defence. His name was Kersant Singh Khalsa, 
a practicing Sikh for 35 years and he was fighting that he needed to he needed a semi-automatic military style high capacity weapon um, and that not being able to carry one would violate mainstream Sikh doctrine requiring Sikhs to be at all times fully prepared to defend themselves and others against injustice. Mm-hmm. So, Rather than just being able to wear the ceremonial dagger, like a kirpan, I think it's called kirpan, he felt, he says, as I feel, as far as my religion goes, it dictates that we should have all weapons of all kinds to defend ourselves. By not being able to carry an assault rifle or weapon that has a high-capacity magazine, I don't feel that I can defend myself or my family. So, you know, you sort of think, well, that's, that's an extreme example. But this, and we don't have obviously a constitutional right to bear arms in Australia. Although you know, if the Liberal Democrats ever get their way, <laughs> it happens. But it leads to this kind of idea that we we have to constantly be making exceptions for something that is um, that isn't really based on fact. That's based on just my personal preference because my my religion and my preferred deity told me so. So. Mm, but in all this, it's always a bit of a balancing of interest, and it's easy to say, for example, well, carrying a gun, uh, that tips over the balance, you know, your desire to to follow your faith versus the need to protect society against mad gunslingers, uh, the, the risks um, of, you know, one of your group at some stage going nuts and shooting people is too high a price to pay. So on the balance of conveniences and etc., we can say to you, no, you're not going to have a gun. But with our little five-year-old boy here with a, with a cap, he's, the, the point is he can't hurt anybody. He can't so hurt he's, anybody with the hat. But then the mm. next step is, right, now he's allowed to wear the hat. He also needs to wear the kirpan. Okay, well, what's that? Well, that's a wooden ceremonial dagger. Mm. Okay, so he could hurt someone with that. I don't know if you've ever seen a five-year-old boy with a wooden dagger, but they generally like to wave things around. So if, you know, we're banning kids from in schools from, like, even playing with guns at all. We're banning kids at all from even using their fingers as guns to shoot other boys in the in the playground. I mean, you, you can't play anything like that anymore, Trevor. So, But this kid's special. He's allowed to have a little ceremonial dagger. And when somebody mm. says, hey, you know, what's that thing on your head? Like, is he allowed to brandish that dagger to defend his honour? I don't know. Like, mm. I just think... We're creating situations where your brand is special is based on some kind of belief that's emotional in nature. It's not really logical in nature. I just don't think it's necessary in our schools. Out in the streets, in your mosques or in your places of worship, in your churches, whatever, go nuts with the funny headwear and the crazy... <laughs> paraphernalia but don't don't bring it into school schools are a place where we we need to be teaching kids fact we need to be teaching them to all get along we need to be giving them some sense of community some sense of you know shared identity i think in schools well i think we've run our arguments out um squeaky wheel we shall let the listener weigh up those you know i'll just finish by saying that you know 
you really have no standing to debate in this issue, not being a, a brown person with that ethnicity. So you couldn't possibly understand having been blinded by your white privilege. Um, so you really, you know, have no place in this debate. Really, I think I think we could leave it, Squeaky Wheel. Um, just soundbite that, Trevor, and so then you can play it over, over and over again, you know, whenever we have these discussions. That's right. Uh, I suggest let's get together a multi-faith group representing victimised minorities, local imams, rabbis, Scientologists, uh, as leaders of their communities, and we can brainstorm an inclusive solution to this problem. Squeaky wheel, that's, that's my finishing Hi. point on that one. <laughs> oh, dear listener, right, that's that one. Um, next topic, squeaky wheel, is... Uh, down in Victoria, you would be aware that the Andrews government is mulling over assisted dying legislation. Yeah. And I uh, subscribe to Catholic News, which is just um, uh, it pours out <laughs> useful articles for me for this podcast on a regular basis. And I noticed that Victorian Premier, or Deputy Premier, James Molino, has split from Premier Daniel Andrews slamming Labor's voluntary euthanasia laws as endorsing suicide and putting the vulnerable at risk. So, so a bit of a breach in the Andrews government where the Deputy Premier, James Molino, has said, nope, uh, it's, it's like endorsing suicide. And oh. squeaky wheel, I reckon that people who haven't listened to this pod, haven't had the benefit of this podcast, might think to themselves, oh, well, perhaps he read some literature or, you know, read some studies to, you know, convince him that, uh, of that argument. But anyone listening to this podcast, I think by now should go, hmm, I wonder, you know, my first instinct, you know, reading that was, is this guy some sort of hardline Christian yeah, I mean that's that's the first instinct I had. Right. Yes. <laughs> quick, quick Google search and came across an article from uh, 2016, where the same uh, Victorian <laughs> Deputy Premier changed his mind on marriage equality, and it opens up by saying he's a staunchly Catholic government minister, linked to Labor's most conservative union, and a long-time opponent of same-sex marriage goes on to say that he had a change of heart and was actually came in favour of marriage equality. And the reasons he gave were that he's got kids of his own and he looked and thought, well, I wonder if one of them turns out to be gay, you know, it'd be terrible if they couldn't marry. So looked at his own kids and he was uh, at one point the education minister during which time he visited lots of schools and met lots of gay kids and and came to um, hear their stories. So, so in terms of assisted dying, I think we can safely say it's his, his Catholic faith that's, um, you know, that's telling him funny. not to agree to assisted dying. Uh -huh. And it's interesting that he was previously against marriage equality but now is in favour of it. And the reason would be, it seems, um, this is the thing, when people, the way to break down bias, as we mentioned before in the podcast, is to make it personal. Absolutely. If people have a, 
a personal experience where they've got a gay son, daughter, niece, nephew, friend, and they suffer from these discriminatory laws, suddenly they go, oh, actually, maybe that, you know, maybe I am suddenly in favour of marriage equality. Looks like that to me. Yeah, and I mean, good on him for changing his mind. I mean, that's something we need to see more of is people, politicians particularly, actually looking at the evidence and actually feeling some empathy with people who experience this and changing their minds. But it goes both ways then, doesn't it, you know, that he's then willing to change his mind over this assisted dying bill. Um, based on his faith, there's a bit of cherry picking that goes on, you know, that as a Catholic he's now able to accept same-sex marriage even though so many Catholics are, are so um, insistent that, you know, the Bible does not agree with this and therefore we can't possibly change our minds and yet he is willing, you know, to to kind of change his mind on that but not not on this other. I mean, it's it's constantly sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul sometimes with the cherry picking, isn't it, when it comes to Christians? I, I, I think it's pathetic. I think we should have... We should get better from our leaders. It shouldn't be necessary to 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 put a series of victims under their noses to make them realise some bad consequences of bad law. And surely they should be able to just have a few concepts running around in their head and objectively sit back and go, oh, well, you know, in that situation, clearly that's not a good thing. But it seems for guys like this that you actually have to you know, as I said, push a victim under their nose for them to see it. So my advice... Empathy is certainly lacking in a lot of people. Um, mm. And that's where that's where the problem is, that, that people still value that anecdotal experience more than they value actual scientific peer-reviewed research because it, it means more to them and they connect with it on an emotional level. And this is what we've seen. How do you... How do you use logic to convince an emotional person or a person who is quite illogical and often, you know, people who are very religious don't tend to value logic um, as a way of thinking about the world? There's, there's a cognitive dissonance that prevents them from looking at things rationally. So I think that's the, that's the key. That's why they need that experience. They, they need to experience it for themselves before they will actually think, oh, well, look, People are hurting here, you know. It's it, whereas I think I, I found a lot of people who aren't very religious tend to be more empathetic. Hmm. I'd agree. So my advice to the people pushing assisted dying legislation would be to to get hold of this deputy premier and start taking him down to some palliative care units. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I mean, yes. forget about facts and figures and what's <laughs> going on in Canada and in Belgium and all the rest of it. You just need to get him into enough hospital wards to make him change his mind. That's, yeah. that's the tactic. And, um, and on that sort of theory where, you know, all the facts in the world and logic and reasoning won't matter to some people, mm. um, the religious instruction argument in schools, I still think that um, the groups who are pushing for changes there really need to tell more stories about the poor kids who are shuffled out of a classroom and put into a broom <laughs> closet um, and forced to do boring activities or made to pick up, you know, rubbish in the playground and and other stuff like that. That's the story that needs to be shown to change a few minds and 
highfalutin notions of equality and secularism fall on deaf ears, but show them a kid in the corner crying because you know the, because of this stupid situation, you might actually change a few opinions. Certainly, particularly when, like in some of those classes, you know, kids are being given little treats or little gifts. You know, for being part of the RI class, and the kid who isn't, who's the atheist kid sitting up the back, hearing it all anyway. Um, you know, it can be difficult, I suppose, for them to reconcile why they're not able to have a little present or, you know, why they're not included. So definitely. Mm. So as I said earlier, when I looked at that article, my first instinct was, okay, he's Catholic or something like that. (laughs) And to Google and to try and find articles and read them and, you know, evidence of his, his... religious affiliation and it's clear that these religious affiliations are enormously influential on the politicians as to the decisions they're going to make for um, you know issues that come up during their term yeah and I'm proposing squeaky wheel that what this country needs you're sitting down (laughs) we need a register of religious affiliation for our politicians yeah i i'm i'm putting the word out there dear listener if you've got spare time if you're retired and you've got a bit of time on your hands we need to set up a little website of some sort where it would be easy to to work out what the religious affiliations of the different members of parliament are because we know that that is then going to strongly influence their decisions on a number of important progressive reforms. And it will be nice to have that all in one spot and to then be able to track the the percentages of um, religious observance amongst our politicians over time, uh, which is a difficult thing to do at the moment. We do it a little bit in relation to the federal cabinet because there's not that many of them. But, um, but yeah, if there's anybody out there who, who likes the idea, I'm, I'm willing to help out in some way. Get you, in contact. Uh, are you going so far as to call for quotas, are you, Trevor? To call for quotas? No. <laughs> we'll get on to that. Um, no. <laughs> But, yeah, we will get on to the, the quota one uh, in, in a moment, squeaky wheel. But um, So, yeah, I reckon a register of, um, of religious affiliation would be uh, a worthwhile thing to have and it would explain a lot about what decisions people make. Certainly. I, um, a couple of episodes ago, went on a, on a long-winded hour, one-hour, 45-minute rant, uh, squeaky wheel, about... Um, the state of Australian politics and religious affiliation and the dominionist takeover of our society. That doesn't sound like you at all, Fist. No, no. So um, a link here to two articles which have appeared since that rant of mine and both along the same lines. One's titled um, Australian Great Political Shift. The other one, How the Church is Splitting the Liberal Party. And the theme of both of them is that um, pretty much in line with what I was suggesting, I, I was saying that there is a, a Tea Party-like takeover of the Liberal Party. And uh, these articles are kind of referring back to a bit of Australian political history and they're saying, well, this is a kind of a DLP situation 
all over again, except instead of the DLP splitting, uh, the DLP Catholics splitting the Labor Party, we've got Corey Bernardi, Tony Abbott Catholics splitting the Liberal Party. And there's some interesting analogies there about, um, about how uh, basically the Catholics in the days of Bob Santa Maria, or B.A. Santa Maria, um, because they were worried about communism, I mean, they were traditionally very much Labor and they formed the DLP and, um, and, and that sort of extracted Catholics out of the Labor Party and then when the DLP eventually disappeared, those Catholics didn't return to the Labor Party. They, they by that stage, progressed across to the Liberal Party. And these articles together are sort of saying, well, okay, now we've got a Cory Bernardi sort of party starting up, which could extract hardline Catholics out of the Liberal Party in much the same way as what happened in the 50s. Um, And sort of, you know, just wondering what's the future of all that. You got any theories on where it's all going to end up? getting harder and harder to tell the major parties apart, to be honest. Like, um, they're, they're both, I mean, riven with political, like, um, religious folk on both sort of sides. And, I mean, sometimes with Labor, you know, the religion is, is unionism <laughs> rather than, than perhaps, you know, a, a religion to, to say. But I think the thing is with Australian politics in general and particularly with our PMs is that we've had so many of them as sort of revolving door of Prime Ministers that it seems to me that the Liberal Party's idea is we'll just have Malcolm up the front but we'll make him really neutral and he'll try to be all things to all people and it's really not working. Um, we, don't know, we don't know what he stands for, We don't, apart from obviously the, the typical Liberal Party things which is just money. Um, we, it, I feel that the leadership there is really wishy-washy. So on one hand, you have Malcolm being all kind of like, oh, we welcome everybody, ah, ah. and then meanwhile just giving Dutton more and more power on the backhand. So it's it's kind of like I, I just feel like he's a front man, you know. He's, he's greasing palms and kissing babies and doing all of that, and we really don't know what the Liberal Party thinks behind the scenes all that much um, on some social issues. And what we see with... Bernardi is is really, I think, that religious right, like holding the party to ransom sometimes um, when it comes to to how the party works. And so I think it will be a good thing to split those out, off, away from the rest of the Liberal Party. The reason that I think that is is twofold is because the Liberal Party is really reluctant to deal with some things that really, really need to be dealt with, and that is at the moment immigration and how we integrate and assimilate sort of other cultures into Australian culture and how sustainable those processes are in the long term. All political parties are really reluctant to touch that. I mean, we're not getting that from the Labor or Greens either, really. Um, We're not getting debate about it, as you know, which is why I am a member of the Secular Party. Um, But I think... Bernardi's little crew on one hand are super keen to talk about that and they may therefore claw back some of the less, I suppose, rabid people who would otherwise vote for groups like Pauline who are, you know, more extreme 
um, or the the ALA or groups like that. So they may claw back some of those on some of those social issues. But of course, you know, I can't support them in any way um, with the religious issues, with the uh, banning same-sex marriage, with the um, refusing to accept assisted dying. You know, so uh, and those things will will drag them down. So. Perhaps a Liberal Party that's unencumbered by that religious right will be able to actually pass some reforms that we need when it comes to things like assisted dying uh, or like same-sex marriage. I mean, why they can't just just make a decision on same-sex marriage and pass it now is anyone's guess. I mean, they really can't because they're being held back by some of these more militant, you know, religious people within the party. And I think otherwise we would we would see that happening um and i think it just should happen it, it we don't need a plebiscite we just we just need progress um well, well so, damn you squeaky wheel you've just stolen the theory because i was going to say exactly the same thing that if i was <laughs> if i was malcolm i'd be i'd be encouraging cory bernardi's little group and i'd be saying to the right wingers within the liberal party go and join him over there off you go like and he will then get the benefit where he will be able to pass some progressive law reform without being held to ransom by these guys. And if he needs to get something through of a, um, of a uh, conservative agenda in terms of economics, well, he'll just get the votes from the Cory Bernardi party anyway. Yeah, I mate, mean, That's right. He's, he's assured those, isn't he? So... The DLP, when it split off, actually, you know, gave preferences to the Liberals and um, I think that's what got Menzies across the line in one of the elections. But there's yeah. no way Cory Bernardi is going to be giving preferences to the Labor Party. They've got nothing in no, common at all. Not. Absolutely not. So, no, I think bring it on, you know. I say bring it on. We, we've got two few political parties almost in this country. Um, mm. What's one more going to have? You know, and we know what they stand for. Like they're, they're pretty much straight up conservative, Christian, stuck in the past, boots in the mud kind of folk. So there'll be people who'll vote for them, sure. Um, there'll be the people that we've got to drag kicking and screaming into the sort of coming technological age, which is already here, really. So mm. you know, when we we need to look at population control, you know, we need we need to look at. Um, same-sex marriage and how human rights and how we treat people a little bit better. So bring it. Let's do it. Mm. We'll see how that pans out. Now, locally in Queensland, we had an interesting situation recently involving Tim Mander. And actually, in my one-hour, 45-minute rant, I referred to Tim Mander as the opposition education spokesman and he's currently not he he was he did have that position but he's currently uh opposition corrective services spokesman and he was in um parliament questioning how queensland's new parole board um well he was questioning the gender makeup of the parole board and he was incensed that on the parole board 68 percent of appointees are female and in his words only 32 percent were male and he said how can you describe these appointments as diverse when there's no uh when there's such a major gender imbalance mr manda asked Mm. um 
Dear listener, this is a former Scripture Union CEO character and the incredulous corrective services ministers were saying, I can't believe I'm being questioned about this sort of thing. And um, yeah, Tim Mander just went on and on and on about how it wasn't gender diverse. He subsequently came out and apologised I think when people pulled him aside and said, do you realise what a nutter you actually are? Like some of these people live in such a bubble, they have no idea what they're saying is. I love this article. First I thought this was hilarious and I think it, I really think he was just trolling really badly for this one because can you imagine if the situation were reversed? <laughs> that, and, and that's what I think he was doing. I really think he was just having a little go here because – if the situation were reversed and we had something, and I mean, he makes a point at one, he makes a point, I don't know, it takes a long time to get to the point, but he makes a point at one stage that 97% of prisoners are males. And here we have the parole board that's made up a minority of females. Mm-hmm. Now, if you reverse that situation and you have, you know, which which happens all the time, by the way, <laughs> which yes. is such just politics or CEOs or, you know, whatever sort of, you know, business boards you want that are made up of majority men but make decisions that affect majority women, um, that's when, you know, we say, well, we absolutely must have more diversity. What's going on here? We can't possibly have 62% of men on this board making decisions that primarily affect women. We can't possibly have old, white, privileged men in Parliament making decisions about abortion without any women there when it only affects women. And they're right. They're right in a sense that we do need more diversity in Parliament. So I think, like, you have to give him a little bit of leeway for saying, well, actually, he's, he's kind of got a point. If we're going to make the opposite argument, if we're going to make the argument that we can't, that we need more diversity and we need, we need more women in in, um, you know, in, in groups that make decisions about women's rights, well, then we probably also do need a couple of couple more blokes in the parole board uh, making decisions that primarily affect men. So I thought, you know, really all he's doing is turning the tables and wasting a little bit of time there. I mean, he's probably not noticing he's doing that. It probably wasn't a deliberate decision for Amanda. It's probably just shooting his mouth up because he doesn't think women should be in charge at all, ever. Um, but... Who knows? We, we can't. I, I've never met men. I couldn't say. But I did think, well, it's kind of a funny article because if you turned it around the other way, all of these people who are saying, what are you talking about? How could you possibly say that? And all of these people are qualified and it's a meritocracy and they've an absolute right to their place. would certainly not be saying that um, if the situation were reversed. I just don't think a two-thirds, one-third in a in a in a biggish group, such a major imbalance myself. I don't know. Like- no, look, I really don't think it is as well, but you have to admit that that the same argument has been made about similar bodies that contain only men or contain mostly men and that we should have a 50 for 50 split, you know, there should be more women in there. Do we need affirmative action to set quotas for women? Personally, I, I don't believe we do. I think we should have boards and we should have you know our systems should be a meritocracy people should be in their positions because they're the best person for the for the job and it really shouldn't matter what they've got between their legs um 
or in their chromosomes or however you want to look at, you know, sex and gender nowadays. But but I think it's an interesting article for showing, in a sense, how rabid we can be when it comes to making sure that women are included and that there's diversity of gender when it comes to females. But then if we apply the same sort of, oh, shock and outrage to a situation where it's where it's reversed, everyone goes, oh, you're an idiot, go away. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. It should be a meritocracy, not based on quotas, and we're going to get into that in a moment. And But just because other people have said stupid things on the reverse um, analogy doesn't mean it's okay for Tim Nander to just say stupid things, you know, like that doesn't excuse it. It should be... Oh, no, but it, it, just makes, it just makes me laugh at the hypocrisy of yes. society. If we're going to, you know what I mean? It, yes. Because it's widely accepted that it's okay to say, well, you're a privileged white male and therefore, you, you know, we need more women on there. How can they possibly... How can that board possibly be diverse and how can it possibly make good decisions when it's, when it's two-thirds men? Yes, but, but clearly uh, Tim Mander was not being genuine at all. I mean, it's not like he's got uh, a history of advocating for equal representation based oh, on gender. I think it's entirely accidental, but it, yeah. it makes me laugh. And, and there's a point there, you know what I mean? There is a point there that if 97% of, of prisoners who are going through the system are males, yep. um, you know, should we should we have more male representation on the board? Have we got the right people on there? Now, the good thing about it is that um, Ryan, you know, whatever he is, um, Justice Commissioner or whatever, comes out and he makes a real case for some of the ladies who are on there. You know, and he, he gives a bit of their background and their qualifications and, you know, he's saying, well, look, you know, really, the, these people are there on merit um, and that's great because... That's how it should be. They should be there based on, on merit. But, you know, I, I think we have to apply these things equally. If, mm. we're, if we're going to suggest that, you know, white males can't have an opinion on women's issues because they're white males, well, then maybe, you know, maybe we, we do need to go ask why 97% of those who are going through prisons are men and what we, what we do when it comes to parole to kind of change that a little bit. Not that we want uh, yeah. in jails, but... <laughs> I, I, per, personally, I can't understand why anyone would want to be on a parole board because I just think it would be the most difficult job because ultimately if you're on the board for long enough, you're going to let somebody out on parole who is then going to com commit some sort of offence and do some nasty things to somebody and you'll be thinking to yourself... Well, why did we, you know, if we didn't leave them out, then that would never have happened. Like, it, it would be a pretty difficult job to do and I I wouldn't want to do it. So I'm just surprised people sign up for it. It'd just be a, a thankless job, I reckon, on the parole board. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of Tim Nanda, if you look at, you know, this is a man who's concerned about diversity <laughs> if you look at the shadow ministry um that he's a part of there's four female and 14 male so uh, yeah oh absolutely i mean it's entirely accidental that he's concerned about it um but i, I just got a bit of a kick out of it <laughs> yes so um um i was lucky actually i um this, this matter was clearly discussed um, by the LNP at the recent conference and I managed to, to get some audio from the conference. So I'll just, I'll just play a bit of this from the LNP conference for everybody. 
sorry about that. That that was actually the recording from the the lunchtime entertainment um, uh, during the LNP conference. People thought it appropriate during the break. They went out onto the porch, uh, got their pen knives out, did a bit of whittling, and there was a bit of banjo dueling happening at the same time. So that was the wrong part. This is the part where they were discussing uh, uh, gender diversity, as as we understand it. Hold on, I'll just find this here. Um. We must, in my view, always have the right to promote the best man for the job, regardless of sex. No. Speaking as an ardent feminist myself, I think that the problem lies in recruiting the right sort of women. Married women with families tend to drop out because, in all honesty, they cannot give their work their full single-minded attention. And unmarried women with no children are not fully around of people with a thorough understanding of life. So that in practice it's rarely possible to find a fully rounded married woman with a happy home and three children who's prepared to devote her whole life, or virtually her whole life, to a department. It's catch-22, really. There you go. That was the thinking um, going on in the LNP conference. Squeaky wheel. Uh, look, quotas are a dangerous thing, and uh, I've got an article here that I'll put a link to, and this was from the Race Discrimination Commissioner. His name is difficult to pronounce, Dr. Tim Suthamasane, or something, Dr. Tim Suthamasane. Anyway, long-winded speech, but in it he talks about a study that the commission did looking at gender diversity in our corporations at the highest levels where they were um, basically categorising our corporate leaders into um, four different groups. Uh, Were they Indigenous, Anglo-Celtic, European or non-European? And then doing some statistics on that and... Amongst the 201 chief executives of ASX 200 companies, 77% were Anglo-Celtic, 18% European, um, and 5% non-European, and none of them had an Indigenous background. And he, at a later point in the article, says, we believe there is a case for considering targets on cultural diversity. And I think you and I are going to agree on this one, Squeaky Wheel, that targets are just a dangerous thing. I think we really are this, but more than that, when I read this article, um, I first got into it and I, and I started to read about how they figured out what the cultural background of these people was. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. They first of all just looked at their public profiles um, and relied on public information such as captioned photos and biographies and um, their, their biographical details, public statements, places, names, places of birth and photographs to determine what their sort of cultural background was. Um, and they then categorised them in, in, into those four groups, so Indigenous, Anglo-Celtic, European or non-European cultural background. Okay, but... They said they're careful how they've described and counted cultural diversity. For instance, we don't refer to people being of a certain cultural background, but rather to people having a certain cultural background. Can't 
really see the distinction there. Um, for example, an individual who has a non-European background doesn't preclude them from also having a European background or an Anglo-Celtic background, as would be the case with an individual who has a Japanese father, father and an Italian mother or a Chinese father and a Scottish mother. So which group are they going into? You know, like... Oh, it was very politically correct language to say, well, their background includes this particular aspect, but that doesn't mean we're pigeonholing them to being only that aspect. So it's... But they, it, oh, they obviously are, otherwise they're putting them in two different groups. So if you've got a Anglo-Celtic mother and an Indigenous father, are you going into both groups or are you going into... Good point. They didn't actually say... You know, he went, he went to great lengths to say, oh, we wouldn't pigeonhole somebody into a single group, but then nowhere did they describe what they did when somebody fell into both groups or yeah, three or four that's, groups. That's exactly right. And, I mean, like a lot of Australians have a lot of different cultural backgrounds. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're mixed race Australian, I mean, my husband's half Dutch and half Filipino, for instance. Like, So what does what he go into? Is he Anglo-Celtic or is he, like, I don't think there was an Asian group. Was there? What were the four groups? You know, so no. which, which it was non-European. Was the uh, would be. so is he non-European or is he European? I don't mm-hmm. know. He's half and half. Obviously, he's a bit of a mitz, a bit of a bit of a bitzer. So where does he fall if he if he were to be a politician? I mean, I don't think it's a something he's planning on anytime soon. But it's it's ridiculous to try and put people into these boxes. You know. Are we going to get to the point where we have DNA tests to determine who's Indigenous enough to be considered Indigenous, to be considered, you know, who's got enough European in them to be considered, you know, white and European? I mean, it's it's insanity. It really doesn't matter. I mean, we should be voting in our politicians and our leaders based on their values, um, you know, their ability to provide good outcomes for people within their electorate not on how much of this or that they've got, you know, coming coming passed down to them from their ancestors. It's insane. The the tone of the article is that if, for example, the general population is 50% Anglo-Celtic and 25% European and 15% non-European and, you know, 10% Aboriginal, then our CEO leadership should reflect the same breakdown of ethnicity is pretty much what he was saying. That's fair enough. Pretty much, yeah. Well, how ludicrous. How how insulting to suggest that as a human being um, you can't make decisions, You you, you can't naturally have empathy with anyone outside of your tribal group um, to make decisions that would benefit society as a whole that you're that you're I mean it's really funny it really it always amuses me first because the left um who generally tend to to own these ideas of identity identity politics I mean not in all instances but but in general they they own identity politics at the moment they they're always very against tribalism you know and they see nationalism as and patriotism as like extreme tribalism. They're very against borders. They're very against any kind of form of, of tribalism. And yet identity politics is tribalism of the worst kind. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, it's, it's breaking tribalism down to its essence and saying we well, can't possibly make decisions for another human being if you're not one of them and you're not one of their tribe. And it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Also, just the notion that let's take the Aboriginal issue there. I mean, the same sort of the same guy would would probably say something along the lines that Aboriginal people have a special connection with the land that they want to stay in their in their tribal homelands, and they have certain cultural norms that they follow, and these should be respected. Yet would refuse to acknowledge that a lot of that cultural norm would be totally antithetical to to wanting to be the CEO of a major company. Like, you, Absolutely, you, yeah. <laughs> like maybe there just isn't the same proportion of Aboriginals as CEOs because they don't want to be. Is that not legitimate reason? Yeah. And oh, definitely, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's like it goes back to the discussion that we had at the start of this podcast of why there aren't more women in, um, you know, in in politics or in um, secular groups. It's it's the same sort of thing. Maybe they just don't. They're not interested. Maybe they're just not interested. You know, I, I think we end up sort of like putting quotas on. We need we need two percent of these. And when does it stop? I mean, there's a lot of different people from different cultural backgrounds. Do we end up saying, oh, well, there's one percent of Scientologists in Australia, we need to have 1% of Scientologists in Parliament and we need to have this, you know, obviously with the latest census results, that would be a great thing for atheists. We'd have 30% of the of the Parliament would be, um, you know, or, or a bit more actually, a bit over that would be, would be atheists. We might actually get some traction. But it's not something that I think should, should ever happen. You know, I think we need to be able to accept that, the, the role of people with, with, who are CEOs or who are leaders of any kind is to lead for all of the people, not just to lead for some of the people. Mm. And quotas could lead to some crazy situations as well. And the example I was thinking of in preparation for this was, uh, for example, in the Jewish community, when it comes to Nobel Prize winners, they are entirely, you know, overrepresented like the number of Jewish Nobel Prize winners compared to the population of Jews in the world, um, there's no relationship. Like they completely outperform statistically right. what yeah. should happen. And, you know, that might be the, well the case here in Australia um, in terms of medical specialists, for example, that there's just a lot more Jewish medical specialists than would be warranted on their population size. Yeah. Just, does that mean we need to put policies in place to help non-Jewish people become medical specialists? Yeah, where to, to even up the quotas. And, you know, the same would be for um, uh, Indians uh, are very big on, um, on, on getting medical qualifications. They really value that as, as a very, very um, good career path. So inherently there would be more Indians in the medical professions than would be... Uh, the case if it was purely based on population statistics. So, you know, do we start, you know, implementing policies to make it easier for non-Indians to become medical people in order to match the population breakdown? This is what happens when you start doing quotas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in, it's it, it would just be never-ending then. Like, people... 
we wouldn't be getting the best people for the for the role, you know. We'd be getting people who sort of were like shoehorned into positions. I just think, yeah, it's it's a gonna it's would be a nightmare to try and achieve that. So mm. no, it's a no to that. Let's let's try and keep it as a meritocracy. And I know there are people who say, well, it's never the playing fair, the the playing field's never been level, and therefore it's not fair, and we need equity. We don't need equality. We need. We need to, you know, give people some positions so that they actually are interested in doing them and, of course, they'll never be interested in them while there aren't positions available there for them and we'll have people like our friend, our dear friend Yasmin, who says, well, therefore, you know, this this country's politics don't represent me because I'm not represented there and nobody's made me feel welcome. But that's the whole point of democracy. Anybody can do it. Um, You know, it's the whole point of having an essentially free education system essentially free health care system that everybody has the same make, can make the same decisions um, yeah. people get confused between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity uh-huh. so you need to ensure the latter but you will never get the former so um, so yeah we just have to ensure there's equality of opportunity for people who want to do these roles that they have a, a, a chance of doing it but we in, in, imposing quotas, uh, is about equality of, of outcome, and that's dangerous. Definitely. And, but it's interesting that they had this recently as well with the um, BBC in the UK. And also uh, someone had posted a photo of the Huffington Post's um, editorial team, and they were pretty much all white women. <laughs> oh, right. And the BBC had a similar thing where they had someone come in and look at diversity within the BBC sort of higher echelons and it was terrible. It was, it was awful. So despite all the sort of banging on about it that comes from some, some channels, I suppose, um, they're not doing any better behind the scenes than the rest of us. Mm. Um, squeaky wheel, we're going to um, move on to some other topics quickly. Um, Charlie Gard, did you follow that at all, the, the little baby? Uh, in the yeah, I did, I did follow it a little bit. Mm. So, dear listener, um, poor little Charlie Gard, born with uh, major medical issues and uh, the hospital made an application to the court to be allowed to switch off the life support system and the parents opposed that and the court had to make a decision um, in that situation and their decision was ultimately to um, to authorise the hospital to turn off the life support. And uh, dear listener, in the UK, in that sort of situation they rely on common law, so previous cases as to things to take into account that the court had to consider. Uh, And I'm going to quote some of that here, some of that precedent. Uh, Account has to be taken of the pain and suffering and quality of life which the child will experience if life is prolonged. Account has also to be taken of the pain and suffering involved in the proposed treatment We know that the instinct and desire for survival is very strong. We all believe in and assert the sanctity of human life. Even very severely handicapped people find a quality of life rewarding, which to the unhandicapped may seem manifestly intolerable. People have an amazing adaptability. But in the end, there will be cases in which the answer must be that it is not in the interest of the child to subject it to treatment, which will cause it increase suffering and prejudice and produce no commensurate benefit. 
giving the fullest possible weight to the child's and mankind's desire to survive. So all good notions, I think, that the court would you'd expect to take into account in deciding whether to switch off life support for Charlie Gard. And um, reason I mention it is because Canon Malik came out with an article which provide an, an interesting look at this issue. And Squeaky Wheel, do you read any Kenan Malik articles? I do, I do on occasion, and I generally agree with him. Mm, he's a good writer. He pointed out that at the same time the Charlie Gard case was being heard, there was also a case in the UK of a fellow called Noel Conway. And the thing about Noel Conway is he's... 67, suffering a motor neuron disease, has less than 12 months to live, uh-huh. is in pain and will be experiencing more pain uh, in the you know, few remaining months of his life. Yeah. And he was applying for permission to have assisted dying. And the court said no. So... Kenan Malik said it's just interesting that on the one hand with Charlie Gard, they took into account these notions of life in the sense of what's tolerable and bearable and, and you know, uh, weighing up all good considerations, yet in the case of Noel Conway, um, he didn't get that. And... Uh, it's an interesting situation where mm. the only difference really is that in the case of Charlie Gard, it's a case of switching off a piece of machinery. Yeah. Whereas in the Noel Conway case, it's a case of administering some sort of drug. Right, yeah. But, but the same principles should apply to the decision as to the appropriateness of that life continuing, you know, that I just read out. Yeah, absolutely. If it's, if it's about quality of life and if it's about sparing pain and, um, you know, not engaging in futile kind of treatments, then it absolutely should apply to both, shouldn't it? It's a massive double standard, really, to say that in in this case, you know, we we have to spare poor little Charlie and let him slip away. And yet, you know, people who are in, in a lot of pain, who are terminally ill, who are going to die, anyway, in pain, um, aren't afforded that that same sort of ability. I mean, just makes no sense. Mm. The, the arguments, you know, that the court looked at in terms of the best interests of, of the person, none of that fails in a situation where the machinery of it is different. Like those same considerations are there. It's just, you know, our society finds itself in a position where, um, you know, the law is inconsistent because mm-hmm. one is switching off and one is administering a drug and these notions of humanity um, don't apply in the second one, it's, ironically. It's, it's quite ridiculous anyway, this because when you have a person who is in hospital and who is terminally, terminally ill, I mean, you still have medical professionals who will do things 
to prevent prolonging that life if it's un, if it's entirely impossible that they're going to improve. So um, that may mean stopping other drugs for heart conditions or things like that, you know what I mean, if you have a terminally ill relative. And, I mean, in some cases they're, they're preventing giving sustenance so that person actually just sort of starves to death, which is a terrible way to die. Um, so they're still able to make decisions that, that actually increase pain and suffering but will also shorten that person's time pain and, in pain and suffering, you know, by not prolonging their life when they're, in, when they're terminally ill in hospice care. So why not just, just let them end that pain and suffering altogether much sooner? Why, why is it, does it have to be that, you know, by stopping um, giving, giving an elderly patient who's dying of prostate cancer, you know, stopping giving him his heart medication and all his other medication that's keeping him alive, you know, to let him, to let him pass away more quickly. I mean, it's, it's ter- terribly cruel when you think about it. Much it is. And it doesn't make sense, and the reason we're in this predicament is because those goddamn religious groups keep <laughs> interfering in our lives and forcing their stupid morality on the rest of us. That's mm. <sighs> okay. Um, squeaky wheel. We on this podcast, uh, well, on the website, there is a facility for people to leave a voicemail message and give some feedback for the podcast. And i got a great one here from John August, which I'm going to play now. So I'll just play that. Hello, I'm John August, and I do a community radio show of my own, Roving Spotlight, broadcasting from Sydney, sometimes on secular issues, but covering a broad range. I've played your stuff and given you a plug. I'd like to put some money your way, but Patreon doesn't really seem set up for one-off donations, so that's a bit frustrating. Never mind. There's stuff I disagree with on your show, but regardless, good on you for putting it out there. I do appreciate it. One point is that there's a big difference between a polytheistic belief system and a monotheistic belief system. It's not just one less God, even if we think gods are nonsense. Polytheistic gods usually exist inside a meta-divine realm, while, for example, the God of the Bible has no such constraints. That's why asking whether the God of the Bible can make a rock too heavy for him to lift is a hard question, but not for the gods of the Greek pantheon. I mean, everyone knows that those gods, while pretty damn powerful, do have their limits. Another is ethics education in New South Wales, which I support even though many outside of New South Wales are against it. At least I live here, and the comments of others who do not remind me of the sentiment. I don't have the time, energy, money, or resources to pursue this, but it's really important, and you should. Rather than legitimating scripture, having both options as opt-in subjects, something we can test at the present, would do a lot to undermine scripture, and we can imagine it squeezing out scripture as the years progress. Nevertheless, I accept our differences and wish you all the best. Oh, squeaky wheel. It makes my day when I get a voicemail message. It means that somebody, somebody is out there listening, which is nice. So good on you, John. Thanks for that. And he has mentioned the podcast a few times on his community radio show, so that's good. Lovely. And he doesn't agree with us, but still on everything, but happy to listen, which is even better. He did mention that on Patreon you couldn't do a one-off donation, but there is on the website, and he did find it eventually, a, uh, a PayPal thing. So if you didn't want to donate, you know, a dollar a show but just wanted to throw in a small amount every so often, you can just do a direct PayPal contribution. So that is there. Um, so good on you, John. Um, oh, um, 
And while I'm at it, a quick thank you to current patrons, current patrons, Ayami, Sean, Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle, Al, John and Ken and Squeaky Wheel. I'm going to do a special thing with the patrons uh, Wednesday next week. We're going to hook up on a Google Hangouts and those who want to, and we'll chat about whatever people want to chat about. So that's a little private thing that patrons get to do. So that'll be interesting, and we'll record a bit of it. And if anything worthwhile, you know, uh, podcastable comes out, we might play a few snippets of it. But um, that's all happening there. So um, one final thing. We've got lots of other topics, but we're way over time here, squeaky wheel. So one other issue I just wanted to get in was... Um, dual citizenship? Are you a citizen of another country and didn't know it? Look, I'm totally not. Um, and uh, I mean, when, of course, you know, the, the Greens um, police started dropping like flies, I was a little bit like, how could they possibly not know? Um, and then, of course, you know, we have, well, I wasn't, you know, my Italian mother signed me up to um, to have dual citizenship. And, you know, it's it's a bit of an interesting one because they all different countries do have different requirements and some you can be a citizen even if you know your parents were citizens and others you can't you have to apply and it's really it's really a mess and they need to sort it out but there have been I think some court cases in the past that have dealt with um, whether people can be politicians and be dual citizens so um, I, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm undecided on whether you know we need to have um, parliamentarians who are who aren't dual citizenship. I suppose if there were to be conflict with another country and you had you know divided loyalties, then that might be problematic. I don't know, um, but I do think that it is a failure of those people who have nominated um, you know and and run to not have checked it before they actually read uh, in that particular seat or for a Senate seat or whatever. Because I know at the secular party when we had the elections recently <coughs> that it was a topic that came up. I know that it is something that is included in nomination packs. Um, and so it is to say, oh, well, I just didn't know. If you're born in, a, in another country to say, well, I just didn't know that I was still a citizen, I think is not doing your due process. Um as you know, somebody who's running for office, you, you need to, you know, be a be all over that. And yeah. all they really needed to have done was to have sent a letter to the embassy saying that they intended to renounce their dual citizenship of this other country. Uh, were they successful? And then, if they were successful, to do that before they were sworn in, and they sort of failed to do that. So, you know, do a bit of due diligence if you're going to run. Yeah, it is amazing that. Um that they overlooked it because, as you said, the secular party is incredibly small and running on the smell of an oily rag, yet everybody yeah. in the executive was fully aware of the issue and, and it was discussed. So that these yeah. bigger organisations could miss it is mind-boggling. But um, yeah. but here's my point, and we've mentioned this before on the podcast and I tried to look up the ep- which episode it was, but why do we allow dual citizenship for anyone in the first place? Like, I've got the f- a starting point theory on this that if people 
want to become Australian citizens, then we could say to them, fantastic, you know, if you meet these requirements, you can be an Australian citizen. And by the way, you can't be the citizen of another country. Like, that's the price you pay for being an Australian citizen. Why do you want to keep the other citizenship? You know, if you really want Australian citizenship, then you'll give up the other one. And if you don't really want it, then we don't want you. Yeah. I think that's a fairly sound argument. But but then on the other hand, like the only way that we've been able to strip some of these foreign jihadis and terrorists, um, prevent them from coming back into Australia is from stripping them of their Australian citizenship if they do have dual citizenship because, of course, we can't strip them of Australian citizenship if they don't and make them stateless because we'd be we'd be um, not in accordance with the Geneva Convention. So, you know, I suppose it works both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. So the one good reason for having dual citizenship is so that we can send people back to <laughs> another country. Yeah, we don't like them. Well, you know, not if we don't like them, but if, certainly if, they, if they're thinking of joining a murderous, you know, raping group of thugs who are terrorising the world, well, it's, mm. you know, it's good to have that option. I can remember Rupert Murdoch when he left Australia to go to the US and started, you know, Fox Network and started buying stuff over there. He had to renounce at that stage his Australian citizenship in order to become an American citizen. And I think the rules in America might have changed subsequently. But Yeah, I think Holland's the same that you have to you have to renounce any other citizenship now. Um so mm. Mm. I like the idea of it. I think that would sort the wheat from the chaff and, you know, if people are serious or not. So, Well, yeah, well, I mean, it, the only thing is that it prevents them from going back and living in that country and getting benefits of, of whatever that country is. I know, you know, several of my friends are dual citizenships and they can they can tra- choose to travel on their French passport or on their Australian passport or, you know, go and work in the European Union um, anywhere they want because they, they have, they're a French national in that sense. So I can see the benefits having a dual, dual citizenship but but yeah I tend to I tend to agree that you know particularly in the case of people who are um, who are not necessarily born in Australia but are coming to Australia to live as immigrants and who then want to become naturalized Australian citizens well then yeah why, why not give it up yeah yep um, one final uh, topic and I realize we're way over time uh, it's hard to put forward an episode without a quick mention of Donald Trump. And uh, he he's really just off the scale. The, the things that are going on with his presidency are just phenomenal. And it's it would be hard for people just to keep up with the names and the people coming and going in his in his administration Absolutely. and what it all what it all means. And uh, you know, podcast listeners. Squeaky wheel sometimes find themselves standing around the water cooler on a Monday morning and needing to sound a little bit like an expert on a particular matter. So, if Trump is mentioned, dear listener, um, and you're needing to just be up to speed on what he's been up to, then a brief rundown is that he's got an Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, and uh, when the uproar came up about Russian intervention in the election campaign and the possible need to investigate that, uh, Jeff Sessions, who was intimately involved with the campaign, said, well, I can't be involved in the investigation in any way, shape or form. 
So he left it to his deputy um, to um, uh, to appoint or, or to, to take over the investigation of the Russian influence in the campaign. The deputy appointed special counsel Robert Mueller to investigate the Russian interference and that Robert Mueller is now expanding his investigation to look at tax returns and business dealings and Trump, of course, is not happy because the guy he appointed, Sessions, stood aside, recused himself and allowed the deputy to appoint Mueller and... So he has openly said that if he'd had known that Jeff Sessions was going to recuse himself, he would never have given him the job. Like it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to say. Um, apparently this attendant... One among many terrible things that have come out of that man's mouth. It is. Twitter feet. <laughs> so he's um, now looking perhaps of trying to force the Attorney General to resign, but Sessions is not budging. And what the concern is now is that Trump might fire... Jeff Sessions as Attorney General and appoint a new Attorney General who could then fire Robert Mueller to stop the investigation into Russian interference. So, and as we know from only the last few days where we had this Scaramouche character hired and fired within 10 days, you know, anything's possible. Anything. I think the, the creators of The Simpsons have stopped actually writing material and they're just taking notes now. That that would that would be the case, but you know, in all of this, like if they find that you know the Trump family breached any number of rules and regulations and um, laws in the United States, um, what will happen is people have to remember Trump, as president, can pardon his family mm. for anything that they might have done, um, and dear listener. He can even pardon himself <laughs> if he is accused well, of something. You know, this is where I sort of, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually a Republican. Um, I don't. I, I actually think I'm pretty comfortable with um, Australia being a constitutional sort of monarchy in the sense that, you know, at least we do have that the option of ousting our PM if we really need to. Like, you know, whereas. Whereas over there, like it's it really is an oligarchy um, at present, and it, the 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 option to for tyranny, you know, despite the constitution and despite the whole legal apparatus, is it it's actually is pretty fraught there. So, you know, if we if we're going to think about seriously, as Shortner's saying, you know, if we're going to seriously think about another bid for making Australia a, a republic, I think we really need to look at how that's going to work. And, of course, that's what that's what sank the last bid. Yeah, the direct election of important people. Like yeah. in, in our system, we appoint, you know, we elect parliamentary representatives and they determine our prime minister. In the US and many other systems, um, they, you know, appoint a parliament but separately appoint the you know, president, and you can, uh, yeah, you could argue that that's a dangerous situation. So a Republican model 
where we're looking to replace the Attorney General with somebody, you know, the more you look at Trump and the USA, the more you think rather than direct election of of our new Attorney General, we need somebody perhaps appointed by a two-thirds majority of the parliament or something to at least get some cross-party support but avoid the problem of, of a democratically elected nutbag like Trump. Dear listener, a little bit of late editing. I referred in that piece to the Attorney General when, of course, it should have been a reference to the Governor General. Yeah, because did you imagine ours? Like, you know, for a while there we would have had Steve Irwin or, you know, like you think if you had that popularly elected sort of of president, like who, who would it be in Australia? Pauline. It, it, yes, it could could be, you know, well, the captain of the Australian cricket team would be half a show every time. Yeah. Oh, Jonathan Thurston, I mean, he, he, he was nearly voted into the Queensland election last week. You'd be happy with that. I've seen your Facebook posts and you would be happy with Jonathan Thurston. Yeah, uh, yeah I would be. I think he's, he's a good guy. He'd do a good job. <laughs> All right, Squeaky Wheel. Well, this, is, this has gone way over time, but very enjoyable. Thank you for finally coming aboard and no You're doubt... welcome. Thank you for asking me. No doubt in the future you'll be back and, um, yeah, so thanks for that. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in and um, we'll be back with more next week. Bye. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.